my dad and I just stared. We sat in two chairs, sitting against the wall, really a window from the room to the outside corridor in the, in in the intensive care unit. 48 hours prior, it was just another summer day, July 31st, 1999, in North Alabama. If you've never been down south, you've probably heard about the south and its climate. It's hot and it's humid. July 31st, 1999 was no different. We were enjoying a Saturday afternoon. That morning, I had gone with my dad to test drive a car. Don't ask me why I remember some of the details. It was a dark red car. We took a drive around the car dealership neighborhood on the west side of town. I guess mom and dad were looking to upgrade to a midsize, get some more space so that when we took road trips to my grandparents' place, we wouldn't be so cramped. We'd had a pretty good summer. We'd had a pretty good spring. Had traveled to Florida to see some Major League Baseball basic or spring training. We had traveled a bit in the summertime. We were back now two weeks before I would start my freshman year of high school. July 31st, 1999 started like any other day after the test drive. It's a warm afternoon. We're hanging out in the house. Mom and I are standing next to each other at the kitchen counter and she's prepping herself a cup of coffee and me a cup of coffee. I'm 14 years old and I've actually been drinking coffee for a while by then. Like some of you, perhaps, who got an early start with coffee, mine was mostly milk, a little bit of coffee, and has, of course, evolved now to nothing but straight coffee, several cups throughout the morning. But back then, I got to enjoy an afternoon cup with a good bit of milk and a little bit of sugar. Mom usually prepped it for me. We're standing at the kitchen counter. I don't remember talking. I don't remember any type of conversation but I do remember looking over at her and I do remember her stirring. And then I remember her falling. She collapsed into me. I was not strong. I was not big. So I didn't have the ability to hold her up. Dad rushed in, helped her to the sofa in the living room in front of the big window, called 911. She was lying on the couch, her speech slurring. I was trying to talk with her. The ambulance showed up, paramedics came into the house, did what they could, and then had to get her on a stretcher and down the concrete steps in front of our house. Really, the front door was on the second floor, so they had to take the litter down a series of concrete steps into the patient compartment of the ambulance, and then they rushed to the hospital. They admonished us several times, don't follow too close. We can't escort you. You can't run red lights just because of us. Drive safe to the hospital and you will see her there. I think my dad more or less followed the directions, but he certainly didn't take his time. We rushed to the hospital, maybe 15 minutes away. And then the next 48 hours becomes a blur. There's images here and there that I can remember. I remember sleeping that first night in the waiting area while nothing really happened. 
I remember waking up the next morning, Sunday, checking in at the nurse's station. Really, none of them wanted to give us the time of day. I have a lot of respect for healthcare workers. I have a lot of respect for nurses and physicians and pharmacists, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. I've met many who are dedicated to their work and to their patients. That weekend was not one of those times, at least not to 14-year-old me who had a lot of other things going on in his mind. The 48 hours goes by in a blur for the most part until the moment that I will always remember vividly in the neurointensive care unit in the corridor outside the rooms while her room was sealed off for a procedure, the doctor came up to us, my dad, my aunt, and me, and said, she's gone. And as I remember it, just walked away. That was about eight o'clock on a Monday morning, August 1st, 1999, two weeks before I would start my senior year of high school. I was 14. I had lived a pretty sheltered childhood, didn't have many friends, didn't play any sports, wasn't in any clubs, wasn't particularly athletic. I was a run-of-the-mill nerd, pretty good in school. That was about it. But if there was one person in the world who I thought understood me, who I thought looked out for me, and who I absolutely knew would help guide me into adulthood, it was mom. And a doctor who I think we had met maybe once or twice before walked up to us, glasses, balding, shorter than me, and I'm pretty short, five, 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 six, said two words and then walked away. Fast forward several hours, I don't know how long, I think it was nighttime, the image I have, it's dark outside. Dad and I are in those chairs staring at her body, at mom's body, in a plastic rubber bag of sorts that makes it sound particularly unceremonious. But I'll tell you, if you've ever seen this, it is unceremonious. She's inside of this bag to be preserved long enough so that organ donation can take place. My mother had volunteered as an organ donor. And even though she had been declared passed away in the morning, it took them that long to get whatever people and things in position to conduct the final surgery, the final operation to remove what organs could be removed and donated to uh, other people in need. Organ donation is a great thing. It's a great technology, but nothing prepared me for the several hours of her body on a ventilator, breathing artificially inside of a thermal controlled bag just to keep bodily functions nominally running instead of starting to decompose so that those organs could be useful to someone else and could give life to someone else. It is an amazing technology, but nothing prepares you for the image. And certainly as a 14 year old living that sheltered life, nothing prepared me for the man in a generic black suit to walk in the door and 
my memory suggests this is only a couple hours after she passed, but it was probably closer to six, seven, eight hours. To his credit, I'm sure we had been given the time, but it definitely didn't feel that way. Nothing could have prepared me for him walking in that door and asking, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to take the body? Where is the service going to be? Who do you need to contact? What insurance is there available? What are your instructions for the hospital for these situations? What were her last wishes? I don't remember my dad saying much. My mother was 49, and this is certainly not a conversation she and I had ever had. Presumably, my mom and dad had had this conversation. This is a conversation that I think adults have and certainly parents have, and it's a conversation my wife and I have started having now that we have two kids. In that moment, I had no idea what to say except leave. We're not ready for this yet. So he left, came back a couple hours later. So now it has to be late evening, past dinner time. I had, I had worked up the gumption enough to start looking through the yellow pages of all things to figure out where we would hold the funeral of the one person in the world that I could always think of to go to for help, to go to with questions, to go to as a friend and as a confidant and as a parent. I chose where we would have the service, where to send the body, who to contact, when we'd have the service and talked with my dad through who we needed to call, who we needed to invite, and eventually what the service would look like. Two weeks later, I started high school, embarked on a pretty turbulent four-year experience, left for college in 2003, an up-and-down five-year experience, and then entered a world where I didn't know it at the time, and it's, and it's taken me this long, in fact, 20 years plus to understand this relationship, a world for which I may have been particularly suited, not because I'm technically inclined, not because I'm particularly smart in math or in sciences, certainly not because I know anything about weapons or explosives or airplanes, but because of one singular defining moment that has taught me what is to this date probably the single most defining lesson in my life. And that is you have to be prepared for anything and the time to prepare for it is not when it's happening. So as I was thinking through what today's show was going to be, I conceived it very differently. Uh, I, I recently finished a book. I shared it with uh, our, the Facebook group. If you haven't joined, look up Teach, Train, Lead, uh, 82 members strong and growing. And it's a group where we talk about all things leadership and people and investing in people. So every week I share what I'm reading or what I've just finished reading. And this past week, I finished reading a book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And while it is on the surface, a book about personal finance, there are are a ton of insights in here that apply way beyond what you should do with your money. 
so I share normally I'll share the book this week I did a video talked about it for a minute but there's a number of things in here that I wanted to share with you and as I was thinking through how to structure this show this week um, how to introduce it what my core message would be what the through line would be my mind took off and I started to think about all the other through lines that I've been trying to draw and trying to figure out the past few weeks. If this is the first episode you're catching, you may want to go back and listen to episode one only because there's a good bit more history in there and it may help put some of this into context. I'm a transitioning Air Force officer and the operative word in that phrase is transitioning. The Air Force uh, allowed me to do some pretty cool things and being an officer is a difficult but very rewarding opportunity to lead and invest in others. But transition is what I've spent most of the time, most of my last few weeks thinking about as I step closer and closer to my last day officially uh, at the end of this month, the end of April 2021. And so I've done a lot of reflection and I've been thinking a lot about not just my uh, career in the military and what I've, what I've gotten to do, what I've asked my family to do, what I've asked my family to sacrifice. But even before that, one of the things that you struggle with, or at least friends of mine I do know have struggled with it, and I am struggling with it now, is how you extricate yourself uh, from that identity and how do you push forward? How do you know which direction to go? And one of the things I've uncovered, one of the things I've been thinking about, and one of the things really that hit me like a ton of bricks just in the last day or two is a connection from August 1st, 1999, when 14-year-old me had to plan my mother's funeral, to now where with almost 13 years of experience, mostly as a nuclear operations officer, I'm embarking on a new career path, a new professional path that looks almost nothing like what I used to do. In fact, really looks nothing like what I used to do. And I'm excited for it. But what kind of through line is that? I've got a pretty eclectic background, a pretty eclectic academic record. A pretty eclectic reading list. How do I put all these things together? How is this a coherent picture of the type of person that I am? And then I realize there is one thing that ties them together. And that is the one thing that we're going to talk about here today. And like any, like any show, like any episode, like any post on social media, if you follow me anywhere on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, especially, I want to hear what you think. And I want to hear your feedback. The one thing that ties together my experiences when I was young, my experience after my mom died, and my experience all through my active duty military time to now is that I act on the belief that you cannot predict the future. And I am adamant to anyone who will listen that you cannot predict the future. So let me start with let me let me start with this. Let me continue with this. Here's a question. What do Napoleon, Dwight Eisenhower, and Mike Tyson all have in common? Take a second and think about it. It probably sounds like a ridiculous question. 
three men from three separate eras that would appear to have almost nothing in common. Eisenhower and Napoleon, both military men, sure. Both political leaders, arguably on opposite ends of the spectrum. Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander of World War II in Europe and a future president of the United States. Napoleon was a, a military leader for the French and a dictator. Mike Tyson is a world-famous boxer and fighter. But all three of them, while it may seem as though they have nothing in common, did share at least one tenet of leadership, of planning, of strategic thinking. To quote Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Napoleon had this same insight. Eisenhower had this same insight. The Prussians had this same insight. And, and all of them hover around a quote that is often uh, attributed incorrectly to Eisenhower, but it is in fact attributed correctly to a Prussian general whose name now escapes me and I didn't write it down. And it's that no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. There's many variations of this. The original quote is worded a bit differently, so that's a paraphrase. But of, of the many things that I taught and trained all throughout my military time, to include the time I spent at the university, I probably said that phrase the most. No good plan survives first contact with the enemy. Everyone has got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Why do I care so much about this idea and why are we gonna spend a little while together talking about it? So in the book, The Psychology of Money, you know, most of this book is talking about personal finance. And if there's one thing you can get someone's attention on, probably, maybe, it's their finances, it's their money, it's their ability to do things that you can do with money, get your time back, get some freedom to make decisions, take care of your family members, provide for them, provide for the household, all the things we're used to doing with money. Money is a ubiquitous topic of conversation and a ubiquitous stressor. It seems everybody has some sort of stressor tied to finances or tied to money. So at one point uh, in the 12th chapter, the book is broken up into several short chapters that are all um, really written like like vignettes. You could almost, you could read them independently. He even the, the author says as much as in his introduction, I just read uh, start to finish or front to back, I should say, but he makes a particularly interesting point in chapter 12, which is called surprise. And it's the idea that we have a tendency to use history, at least the history of economic change as a quote map of the future. So we look at things like the great, the panic of 1907, which I was just reading about today. That's otherwise it, that probably wouldn't have come to mind at all. We think about that. We think about the great depression. We think about recessions that we've suffered uh, in the past 150 years of American economic history. Even the professionals, even the academics, even the bankers look at that history and then try to come up with a set of decisions with an approach that will fix or improve the economy based on that history. I'm rereading Too Big to Fail, 
Andrew Ross Sorkin's Chronicle of the Financial Crisis of 2007-2008. And one of the biggest stories of the time was how the Fed chairman had made his career studying the Great Depression. And so he aimed to make decisions based on what we learned about the Federal Reserve uh, in 1929, 30, 31, 32. But of course, as, as we have seen since 2008, the world is very different than it was in 1929. And so while, while it might be easy and could be easy, I'm not the expert here, while it could be easy to say that the crisis could have gone way worse had Ben Bernanke not taken the steps he did and had Treasury and had the banks not taken the steps that they did, we also have to acknowledge that the scenario we ran into collectively in 2007, 2008 is not the same as the stock market crash of 1929. So to make this point, Housel asks this question, how many people were born in the 19th and 20th centuries? So the 1800s and the 1900s, how many people do you think were born? 15 billion, probably a ballpark estimate, but just take that number as given. 15 billion people were born in the 19th and 20th centuries. So now think about all the history, whatever history you might know, from the past 200 plus years, 221 years. And now listen to these names and think about how each of these names drove history. And what do you think would be different in the world had any of these individuals not been born? Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Gavrilo Princip, Thomas Edison, Bill Gates, and Martin Luther King. That's a list of seven people. Seven people out of 15 billion arguably affected the world in a permanent way, each and every one of them. Not all of them for good, clearly, right? That list has some particularly heinous individuals on it and some particularly famous um, leaders and saviors of causes, right? So to put names like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin on the same list as Bill Gates and Martin Luther King is not to compare them, but simply to identify what I think must be a fact that if not for any one of those men, world history would have developed differently, not better, not worse, differently at the very least. So if you can acknowledge that, the point that Housel is making is you can then acknowledge how difficult, how impossible it is to predict the future, even if you know the past. And it is impossible to know all the variables that are going to come into play five minutes from now, 10 minutes from now, an hour from now, a day from now, we might be relatively confident what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Many of us walk around with planners, with calendars. We make all sorts of plans and to-do lists. We think we know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. But how many of those plans for the next day pan out? How many times have you had to change your schedule blocks or your schedule time or your lunch time or your workout time? How many times have you made it home on time from work, right? Right there is a small example that proves we have no idea. 
what can happen in the future. This is the through line that I've been working with, working around for years, even though I didn't know it for a long time. But it helps to explain why I'm so focused on the things that I'm focused on. And so think about for a minute, what are, what are the defining moments that you've experienced that completely changed how you thought, completely changed how you operated, completely changed the kinds of questions you asked, completely changed what kind of assumptions you were willing to make, completely changed what kind of assumptions you never would make again. Uh, in a later chapter, I think it's the next chapter, Housel says, you can't prepare for what you can't envision. So he's talking about taking on risk and, and what do you do when you don't know what history is going to do, how, the how time, how the future will unfold. And so there must always be that window of chance, call it luck, call it risk, call it whatever you want. But I read that and I thought, my immediate reaction was, well, hold on a minute, of course you can. You can absolutely prepare for what you can't envision. And so then he writes the line or shares the line that I think is the key out of the entire book. It's the key for today's, for this episode. And it's frankly a key point that if you take nothing else from today, from this episode, if you take nothing else from this time together, take this one nugget and figure out how it applies to where you work and how you live. So at one point, the author back in chapter 12, talking about surprise and the use of history is quoting Nassim Taleb, who's another famous academic and author. And in Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomness, he talks about in ancient Egypt, scribes tracked the high watermark of the Nile and used it as an estimate for a future worst case scenario. The same can be seen in the Fukushima nuclear reactor, which experienced a catastrophic failure in 2011 when a tsunami struck. It had been built to withstand the worst part, the worst past historical earthquake, with the builders not imagining much worse and not thinking that the worst past event had to be a surprise as it had no precedent. Okay, so what ties all these things together? If you haven't read the history, I would absolutely encourage you, go back and read some of the history from the late 20s, really early 30s. Hitler came to power in Germany in 1932, but we commonly talk about the World War II experience starting with the invasion of Poland in September 1939. Persecution of the Jews, the Holocaust started before that. Right, Germany starting to clamp down and, and turn into the evil that it ended up being for the world started before that. But it was very difficult for people to foresee. It was impossible for people to, to foresee, and it was impossible for people to imagine that it would take a war on the scale of World War II to stop it. History always makes sense because we always have the hindsight, but how many people, how many of you know for a fact that if you, would, if you were transplanted to 1930, 
1932-1934, in the middle of a worldwide depression, economic depression, that you would see all the threats coming, that you would see history's course coming on the horizon. There's no way to know. So the scribes in Egypt would always use the last time the Nile flooded as their marker for the next flood, and then the river would surpass it. In Japan, the Fukushima nuclear reactor was designed to resist what was the last worst earthquake, not what could be, but simply what had been. And we saw what happened in 2011. If you don't know the story, an earthquake and tsunami led to a meltdown of that nuclear reactor and widespread contamination in that area. And then Housel says this, the key nugget to take from today's show. This is not a failure of analysis. It's a failure of imagination. It is not a failure of analysis. It is a failure of imagination. This is what I'll focus on here for the rest of the time. And this is what I would ask you to focus on wherever you work, whatever you do, and in whatever situation you find yourself in personally and professionally. So when I was 14, my mother died and it is not something we saw coming. She had been on some medication. She was dealing with some things, but she was not chronically ill, at least that I knew. She was not in and out of doctor's offices and hospitals. She was under a lot of stress, working a lot of hours. And while some of that can explain what happened, nobody saw a stroke coming for a 49-year-old, relatively healthy woman. And certainly, I did not see that type of thing coming. And yet, I had to respond to it. I wasn't prepared for it, but I didn't have a choice. So fast forward, I'm now a nuclear operator. I'm stationed in North Dakota. And by definition, if, if you're not someone who's ever worked with nuclear weapons, if you're not someone, particularly in the missile community in the Air Force, if you're not someone who's worked in this community, it can be tough to imagine. Our whole purpose is to maintain readiness to conduct a strike with a weapon that's never been used in combat. Now, the, the United States has used nuclear weapons in combat, right? In, in August 1945, we used two atomic weapons against the Japanese. That story is well known, and that is the end cap to the World War II story, at least in terms of the war period, the wartime period. But the weapons we have now, of course, they're more advanced. The delivery vehicles look different. In the intercontinental ballistic missile case, the weapons are designed to go a long way and to inflict serious damage in terms of their explosive power. They are more powerful than what we used in 1945. And the scenarios for which our weapon was designed have never happened. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful that they've never happened. And I don't know of any missileer that, I, that I've ever met or ever encountered that feels otherwise. Of course, we are thankful we've never had to use this weapon. But our whole purpose is to train relentlessly and be prepared to conduct what would be an, an historic strike on an enemy combatant. 
if our weapon system is used in combat, it changes the world, even if it's one. From a political standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, the assumptions we make going into a conflict, whose side other nations will take, everything changes if we use one of these weapons. Everything changes. So I did okay in the job. I really enjoyed the job. I'm a history buff, and I also appreciated the mission for what it was. Very unique. We're the only ones that do it across the U.S. military and across all of our platforms in the United States. The Air Force are the only ones uh, that do ICBM ops. And so once I became an instructor and I started to teach other crew members about the art and science of working with nuclear weapons and planning for these types of conflicts, and I think I've talked about this before, I talked about this last week, the only way for us to train scenarios effectively was to use a mix of technical know-how, policy, and intuition. So if you're a fighter pilot in the Air Force, a helicopter pilot in the Army, uh, if you drive a ship or you're a SEAL special operator in the Navy, if you're a U.S. Marine, if, if you, for the vast majority of jobs across the military environment, and we'll leave the Space Force to the side, not because they don't count, but because they are living this same reality now. So in fact, they're another great example of what I'm talking about. But for most of the conventional military, what you think of as the military, we have engaged our capability before. We have fought in ground combat. We have used tanks in combat. We have used fighter planes. We have used bombers. We have some sense of what the conflict will look like. Now, there's no way to guarantee every time we engage with an adversary, the enemy gets a vote. Right? That's another quote that is, that is common across the military spectrum. The enemy gets a vote, and no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. So something is always going to change, and something is always going to challenge you. But at the very least, if I take a bomber air crew into the air, and we do some training, I can maneuver the airplane, I can walk them through a maneuver, and we have a real-time tactile sense of what the airplane is going to do in a certain situation. And we can talk through scenarios, what happens if it's windy, stormy, if we're getting intercepted by a fighter airplane, all these types of things we can walk through, right? Soldiers can walk through scenarios on the ground. We can map out scenarios. We build whole mock cities to train ground maneuver units. In nuclear weapons for a whole host of reasons, some of which are probably obvious, we can't do any of that. We can't do real-time walkthroughs. We don't launch weapons from our operational bases ever. Not only can we not do that for testing, but consider the strategic implications of doing that, even by accident, so we don't even get close to it. Our tests and our training are strictly separated, and we become combat effective and combat ready using a simulator. Now, we train in the field, and it's been a while since I've, since I've been in the environment. So, in fact, we probably do it way better than we did it when I was there, certainly better than with the way I did it. 
but we relied very heavily on a simulator because the only way to train for war is to go to war. The only way to experience it is to do it. And in our world, the, the best thing you could do was to simulate the conflict in, in a simulator using the computer. Put your crew into a simulator with all the screens and all the indicators, and then just give them hell and give them scenarios that were as complex and as difficult as you could. Because getting to the quote unquote right answer is not the point. It's to hone the thinking muscle, the thinking skill to become so good at solving problems you've never seen. You're that much more confident that you will solve the problem that you do see in the real world. So I kind of went off on a tangent there and I gave you my philosophy and it all goes back to this phrase, these two sentences that Housel shares in his book. The disaster we saw at Fukushima, the floods that the ancient Egyptians saw, the, the catastrophe that we saw beset New Orleans in the wake of Katrina in 2005, these are all results of failures to imagine, not failures to analyze. If you've read anything about the Hurricane Katrina scenario in and around New Orleans, right? We, you probably know that New Orleans was absolutely devastated and parts of the city were completely underwater after Katrina made landfall in 2005. The system around the city that's meant to protect the city from floodwaters because the city is below sea level geographically, that system put together by the Army Corps of Engineers was never finished. But even the design for updated levees and protections against water intrusion were designed based on previous flood and storm events. If you travel east to the low countries in Western Europe, to the Netherlands, you will find a seawall system and a protection system designed for I don't remember now. It's like a thousand year or a 5,000 year might be more than that flood event. Like an, an insanely biblical flood event that nobody in recorded history has ever seen. Now, this is territory that is also below sea level. And the engineers designing the flood protection system in this country said that the risk of not doing enough isn't even worth discussing. It's not even worth bearing. So we're going to build a system so robust, it, it, it will withstand the worst possible thing we can imagine, no matter how implausible it sounds. If it's technically possible, it's on the table. And if it's on the table, we have to plan for it. When I first read that story several years ago, I just, the light bulb went off and I was like, this is exactly what we do. This is exactly what I do. And yet... I often would face so much resistance. So I became infamous, we'll say, in my unit for my training scenarios. I made them particularly complex. I put effort into them, and I loved challenging my crew members, not because I wanted to see them sweat, not because I wanted to see them fail, not because I was trying to make them think less of themselves, quite the opposite, because I knew that in, in our line of work, Making your thinking muscle, I don't know what word I'm searching for here, 
your thinking apparatus. That doesn't make any sense. Strengthening your brain, your ability to think through problems and to solve problems. That is the number one thing we needed our crew members to do. Because in the old days, when we stepped out into the field and our training, which was pretty rudimentary, was complete, we'd freeze up all the time when we saw stuff we weren't used to, when we saw stuff that was new, when we got pushback from other people because we were walking into a situation that didn't have a checklist for it. If it didn't have a checklist, we were effectively dead in the water. But that's not how the real world works. My students at the university would ask me all the time, well, what's the right way to do this? I'm like, well, it depends. What's your objective? What are you able to do? What do the rules say? Who are the stakeholders involved? I would always ask, answer their question with five or six follow-on questions and they'd get super annoyed. And I get it. If you're listening and this was you uh, either recently or in the past, I get it. I know it's annoying. But very few situations in real life have a black and white answer least of which the situation no one has ever seen before. So how do you prepare for the unknown? How do you prepare for that? The first answer is you employ your imagination. But why do we struggle with that? Why do we not want to do that? Analysis is important to understand why something went wrong so that we can make the minimum fixes. That's important. But don't then stop short of imagining how much worse it could be, how much more complex it could be, how many more variables they could, there could be, how many more situations you could get into that we're not ready for or that we haven't talked about. Uh, at, at another, in another part of the book, Housel talks about, he's talking about risk-taking. And uh, think, think for a second about playing Russian roulette. So if you don't know what Russian roulette is, picture a revolver, a six-shooter, empty chamber. So you unlock the chamber, you load one bullet, spin, and then... Uh, lock the chamber, cock the weapon. Russian roulette, the game is simple. You have one bullet, six opportunities, and you fire. And if you're playing with yourself, you have a one in six chance of killing yourself. So why do I bring this up? Well, the, the, what did I say before? How do you prepare for the unknown? Well, the first step is to imagine. And when I would do that, people would often come back to me and they'd say, this isn't realistic. This can't happen. This would never happen. And particularly in a world where we're fighting with nuclear weapons, the only answer I could come up with was, how do you know that? I don't know that. But as long as it is technically possible, I'm not violating any laws of physics I'm following what our intel analysts and our senior political leaders tell us is possible. You have no idea, and I have no idea. So all we can do is prepare for anything, literally anything. So the first step is to imagine. The second step takes me back to the Russian roulette example. So you have a one in six chance of killing yourself. Do you play the game? 
Housel's point is, you know, people take all sorts of risks every day. And so in the, in the one, on the one hand, you could argue, well, taking a risk like that is going to be worthwhile if the upside has a pretty high likelihood of happening. So let me do some math here. One in six, 16.6% chance of killing yourself. Right. So then what's the, what's the opposite? Greater than 85% chance of living through the experience. Right. So I think most people would say, well, if you have a greater than 85% chance, you've got a pretty good chance at that thing happening, whatever it is, particularly if it's the upside, right? 85% chance to make money, 85% chance to win the conflict, 85% chance to live through the experience. Pretty good chance, pretty good odds. But can you absorb the downside? So can you absorb the 16% chance that you don't make it through the experience, that you lose the conflict, that the company collapses, that we go bankrupt, that we lose the house? So there is a counter to imagination and risk. What level of risk gets you past the tipping point? where you can no longer survive it. And that might not be you bodily, yourself. We're not talking about your own mortality necessarily, but it could be the organization, it could be the team. Not only must you imagine the worst case scenarios, but to take this risk metaphor, this risk analogy a little bit further, what are the risks you are willing to take at work, in the operation as part of the plan and what is the absolute red line that you cannot cross no matter how great the upside might sound russian roulette makes it pretty simple 85 percent might might be great odds for most things investing money taking on a new job buying a house trying a new school but when the downside is killing yourself is it worth it? No, it's not a worthwhile risk, no matter how small you think 16% is. Taking risk can be a good thing, but then what is the ruinous end of that risk that you cannot survive? So when you're planning for an operation, when you are training a team have that conversation. You need to imagine what all can happen, what can go wrong, and then what risks must you take in creating that plan, in creating that training? What risks do you account for discussing the next six months, the next year? And what is the red line after which once you cross it, you have to stop? We're not willing to have that conversation, I don't think, because we don't want to talk about what happens on the other side of that red line. And I don't know why. It occurs to me, you know, as, as I'm having this conversation with you, as I'm talking out loud now, despite the notes that I did have, despite what I thought I was going to talk about, you know, this is really 
turning more into a discussion of things we don't discuss, but that we absolutely should. And if there is a through line in, at least in my past, and for those who know me, maybe this resonates, maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm totally full of shit. You can tell me, I hope you tell me, you know, one has been, I focus on what is possible and I try to employ my imagination, which yes, often makes things harder, more difficult. But another through line is I, I don't tend to keep my mouth shut even when the conversation is awkward or uncomfortable. And I will ask why in that moment where no one wants me to. So to get back to talking about risk, right? And this certainly applies to personal finance. This, this book, like I said, on the surface, it's about money. It's called The Psychology of Money. Highly recommend, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out. It absolutely applies to personal finance, right? If you're going to leverage yourself, if you're going to take out a bunch of debt and then invest that money, because the interest rate is lower than what you think you're going to get back from the market. Okay, that might be a worthwhile risk. But what's the downside, right? If the downside is you come up short in the market and you lose your house, is that worth it? Versus you lose a few thousand dollars. If you can absorb that, if you can soak that up, okay, maybe that's a worthwhile gamble. Maybe that's a worthwhile, gamble's not the right word. Maybe that's a worthwhile risk. But if the downside to taking that risk, to taking that chance is something that you define as catastrophic, the, the first, really what you need to do is identify it and be honest with it, right? I mean, that, maybe that goes without saying, but I think that we don't even do this well. So we're going to take this risk and we're going to invest and we're going to do whatever and we're going to take out a loan to, to, to bulk up the funds that we have in this account. Okay, so... We'll, we'll take the Russian roulette numbers, 85% chance we break even or make some money back. Well, that sounds like good odds. We're healthy. We're doing well. We've got decent insurance, not paying too big of a premium. Okay, great. But based on the amount of debt you've taken out, based on the, so based on the investment, 16% chance or so that it, it goes south. And based on the amount of debt, there's no way for you to recover that money without selling your house. Well crap. I don't know if that's worth it now. 16% is not a lot, but even a 1% chance that I lose the house, I don't know if that's worthwhile. That's a tough conversation to have, but you need to have it. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He works in financial services. So we're talking about my personal finances, personal finance, money stuff in general. And, and he says something that I've, I've heard other financial services professionals say, I've said it in my own work in the military, and yet it's, it's so difficult for people to acknowledge. The best time to plan for the worst case scenario is not in the middle of the worst case scenario. And when he said it, I think that was the first building block that eventually became what I'm sharing with you today and, and what I've been thinking through most of the last 24 hours. And we'll probably think about the rest of the week. The defining moment of my life, I think, is when I lost my mother. And I've, I've known that for a long time, but it's taken me this long to learn from it. Like I said before, 20 years plus. 
in that moment at that time, I was in the middle of what, of a worst case scenario of my worst case scenario, trying to figure out how to navigate the worst case scenario. And I chased my tail the entire time. Now I'm, so I'm not saying you go through life always thinking about what's going to happen when my parents die, or if my spouse dies, or if my kids, God forbid, if something happens to them, or if something happens to the house or one of the cars or one of our pets, right? We, we can go into doomsday scenarios all day long. And God knows I've been guilty of that in the recent past. I have a tendency to go negative and that's been a problem for my family and me. So I'm not telling you to spend all your time thinking about all the things that can go wrong. But you do need to compartment some time, set aside some time to imagine and then talk about how much risk you're willing to take on. All right, this is a conversation you'd have when you're talking about buying insurance. You know, hashtag adulting. I'm 35, two kids. I'm having conversations about insurance and life benefits and long-term care and things that I never thought about before that, you know, between having an older parent and older parents and old family members around and us getting older and having kids to support, right? All these things are normal conversations you have. And as much as you don't want to have them, the time to have them is probably right now. If you're walking into a workplace and you are either looking at a high-risk decision or a high-risk market or your, your team is getting ready to take on a big project and you're taking on risk in terms of the workload, if you can't get the project done, the company loses a big account, the company loses steam toward another new project or another new investment, you take on the extra work and the other accounts you manage, the other projects you're responsible for, the other people that you're responsible for, take a back seat. What can happen once you start that project or make that investment or start into that new market or take that new path? What can happen? Because the worst thing that can happen is if you have failed to imagine the possibilities and you catch yourself smack dab in the middle of your worst case scenario with no idea where to go and no idea what the first decision is. We would put missileers into the operational environment with rudimentary training and as smart as they always were and are, they simply hadn't been given the tools to navigate the situation. Not because they were dumb or they were slow or they were stupid, none of that. But the institution, the system owes you the training and the skills practice. And the skill that we practiced for a long time was simply reading. Read the checklist step, do the checklist step. That's all we were ever told when I was young. Now, I won't take for granted that you read well and read often or enjoy reading. But for our audience, for our trainees, reading did not deserve the time it got. You know how to read checklist steps if you simply can read the English on the page. What I need you to be able to do 
is to compartment information, integrate information, know when to do one or the other, know how to make decisions with incomplete information, know how to communicate when you can't see the person, you don't have the benefit of body language, everything happens over the phone, know how to prioritize in an emergency, know how to delegate based on individual strengths. Those are the skills that mattered. And that's what we should have been training for. Because by definition, I'd have no, I had no idea what they were going to walk into, but I knew that whatever that situation was, all of those skills, all of those things I listed would take care of them. Being able to think critically and strategically to communicate with anyone, to explain complex ideas in simple terms, in concise terms, reading the checklist falls naturally after that. That's not a big deal at all. You got the steps out of sequence, big deal. Thinking critically through a scenario while you are taking inbound nuclear weapons, that's the shit that matters in, in my world, in the nuclear operations world. What is the equivalent for you? I'm, I'm asking myself this question uh, in personal finance, right? So on the surface level, when it comes to money, I'm absolutely asking this question. What are the things we're not talking about or preparing for? So my wife and I are talking about life insurance and investments and education funding and whether what will college look like by the time our kids are old enough to go to college. But then beyond that, what other things might we need money for? What are the things we're not thinking of? By definition, we don't know, but setting aside some amount of money for those unforeseen circumstances, an injury, excuse me, an injury, a job loss, one of our kids needing to come back home, a medical emergency for one of our kids or one of our kids' kids when the time comes. This, this idea applies everywhere. To your career, to combat, to money, like I've said, this applies to your life writ large. So if I, if I go back to my, to my first question, right, what do Napoleon Eisenhower and Mike Tyson all have in common? Mike Tyson doesn't have the cleanest reputation as a human being, right? He's, he's made headlines lately trying to do right by others and, and trying to do better. But he was right, certainly, when he said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Eisenhower also said something to the effect of um, planning is essential. To have a plan is essential, but planning is useless. Or I think it's the other way around. Planning is essential, but to have a plan is useless. So it is absolutely vital that you think through what can happen and that you use your imagination and you talk through what risks we can take and what risks we simply cannot afford to take. And then remember... So this is a, so I've, I've, I've really kind of gone around in circles. So I, I will try to wrap this up with a bow and uh, hopefully you guys will give me some feedback on how this went. Step one was imagination. Step two was talking through the risks, Russian roulette, remember? Step three was acknowledge or is acknowledge the gap 
that you will still have between your final quote unquote plan and reality. The more you lean on steps one and two, the smaller the gap is between your plan and reality. The gap will never be zero. I don't know much, but I do know that the gap will never be zero. When I stepped into that hospital and into that ICU at age 14, the gap was enormous between what I thought my life was going to look like and what my life turned into in 48 hours time. When I stepped into that hospital room, everything came crashing down because as a 14 year old, certainly I'm, I'm thinking about what the future might be. I think maybe we had talked about college, maybe, but my life revolved around very few things. I was close with my mom and no part of me had considered who I was and what I would do independent of that dynamic. And then 48 hours later, everything's different. So while I'm also not suggesting that you inundate your kids with all of these risk-based conversations, what happens or what to do if something happens to mom and dad, that's not a conversation you would want to have every day, but in fact, you should have it. I think you should have it. At the very least, mom and dad should have that conversation. I know my wife and I have had that conversation and will continue to. Our, our boys are young, two and four months old, thereabouts. So that's, that is not what we talk about at the dinner table. Um, we talk about whatever they're talking about because, you know, they aren't interacting completely yet. They, they get to talk about whatever they want to talk about. But you get the point. You probably should have a conversation like that with your kids when they're old enough. About imagining the types of things they should be ready for. Not just if something happens to you, if you're the parent, but when they go to college or get their first job, things to be prepared for when they start driving, things to be prepared for when they start, when they get a job and interact with other people and they join a team, they take on a project they've never tried before, they take on responsibility. What are the risks that are worth taking and what are the red lines with your money in your personal life? And then acknowledging that no matter how prepared you think you are, the future will not pan out the way you plan it. I, I, I lost breath telling my students that. The, 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 I, I told them constantly, you, no matter what you think you're going to do in the Air Force, no matter what you think your career will look like, it won't look like that. I promise you, no matter what you picture, it won't look like that. So that doesn't mean don't have goals and dreams. That's not what I'm saying. But, but understand that there is value in thinking about the contingencies. What, what if this? What if that? Have some money set aside. Have an identity that is separate from your military career or your professional aspiration because that aspiration won't always be around. So, and I, and I knew we would come back to it, right? For me personally, and for many of the transitioning veterans that I know, this identity question has been key. And I underestimated, I grossly underestimated what it would take to separate myself from that, from that identity, from that military identity. 
So then I, I go back to the book one more time. Household makes a point in another chapter about assuming that we'll never change. And, uh, and the idea that, you know, we, we have professional and personal goals when we're 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old. I wanted to be a professional baseball player once. I wanted to be a pilot once. Um, don't think astronaut was on the list, right? But that, that's kind of the, the quintessential childhood dream, right? We, we dream of all sorts of things when we're kids and those preferences evolve. And in some ways, maybe we, we lose sight of our dreams because we're taught that we can't do them. That's not a good thing. But our preferences also change. So to assume that we ourselves won't change when the world around us is constantly changing doesn't make any sense. And that's the other thing I told my students. And another reason why I said you have to cultivate some interest, some personal something that anchors you, that holds you down, that grounds you outside of your career, outside of what you do. Active duty or not, right? If you get out of the Air Force in four years and you go work as a banker, great. But your identity cannot singularly be based on, I'm a banker. Because you won't be a banker forever. What is it about you that, transcend, that transcends your job? That's another difficult conversation with yourself that you absolutely should have. And it requires imagination. And it requires a consideration of risk. What types of things do you want to learn and try and do? And how far are you willing to take it before you don't think you can survive the additional risk? taking time off to go study something, right? That could be a risk in terms of how much money you need to live, how long you're out of the workforce for, what your family does while you're doing it. I mean, the, the list of examples is near infinite, right? So I'm not gonna go through all of them. I'm not gonna presume to understand where you yourself are in your current stage of life. And hopefully this meandering conversation has made some sense. I don't certainly didn't go the way I had designed it. Um, and like I said before, I don't appreciate scripting. I don't like scripted podcasts. I like it to be free form, even when it's a solo episode. I made some notes today just to, so that I knew where to go in the book. And I don't know, maybe that helped. Maybe it didn't. You'll let me know what you think. So talked a bit about the book. I know the intro perhaps was a bit heavy, but I think it was important to highlight, at least from where I'm coming from, well, why I'm coming from where I'm coming from. And it was, it was a revelation, at least for me personally, to, to finally see a connection that robust between that defining life moment and the defining lesson in my mind, which is failure of imagination. All too often, we are victim to failures of imagination in leadership because our leaders don't think highly enough of us to let us go and make our own decisions. They don't think highly enough of the system we're in. They don't think highly enough of our skills or their own skills to take some risk and to innovate. We see it in finance. We see it in military training. We don't get creative enough with the ways we train each other, with the ways we develop each other. We fall into the trap thinking history will be our guide. And when the situation happens, we'll simply be ready. 
even though we haven't spent a minute talking about all the possibilities. And then we're surprised when we get into the situation and we feel overwhelmed and we freeze. So really, if there's one thing that I, well, I already said, if you take one thing out of this podcast, take that one nugget. It's not failure of analysis, it's failure of imagination. So I can't possibly ask you to take two things out, but I will simply say that is the most important thing out of this episode. And that is one of the most important things that I know I've argued for in the past and that I will probably argue for until the day I'm gone is not to fall victim to failures of imagination in yourself or anyone else around you. Don't fail to imagine the possibilities. This works in the negative and the positive, by the way, too, right? So we hear a lot from people in personal development circles and in self-help, right? Talking about envisioning that future and really being able to manifest the future that you want by thinking through those possibilities and getting past self-sabotage. It, it works in that direction too. But from the standpoint of someone who not just grew up having to handle uh, disaster, having to handle family tragedy, but then professionally grew up in a world where the worst case scenario was really bad. The worst case scenario in a nuclear unit is bad. So all the more reason for me to talk about it, no matter how unlikely it is, because even if it's a 16% chance, right, or less, the consequences of that 1%, 5%, 10% happening are so catastrophic, are so significant, are so life-changing, you cannot help but pay attention. That was the world I grew up in. And so that is my message today and will probably be one of my constant messages moving forward. Do not fall victim to failures of imagination. So as I wrap up, um, I, I think really that's why I'm going down the path that I'm going down now professionally as I leave the military. Uh, I've started a business. I'm growing a business. Enabled Word is the parent name. And I've built two different coaching programs. And actually, I'm working now in earnest on a third. And really, I, I work on, I, I built, I've built both a group and a one-on-one -on -one program. And you can get more information at coaching.enabledlead.com, enabledlead, L-E-A-D.com. But ultimately, there's a constant theme running through those programs too. And it's that the most important thing you can do is to prepare for the unknown, is to be ready for anything. But to do that does not require you to simply run through an infinite number of possible scenarios and possible permutations of how life can go. That's impossible. The way to actually prepare for the unknown is to strip away excess nonsense and focus on fundamentals and keep it simple. Know what you stand for, hone the few skills that you absolutely know you'll need, and then let everyone around you make their own decisions and trust. That's what we work on in our coaching programs, both one-on-one -on -one and group, coaching.enabledlead.com for more information on that. Find me on social media. Uh, I spend most of my time 
Facebook, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn. You can find me by name, Arun Chatur. You can also find us through the Enabled Word um, brand. Find us, follow us. And if you like this podcast, if you appreciate what we're doing, um, I do ask that you leave a rating and review. I have, and I'm sure you've heard this from other podcasts you listen to, I've underestimated uh, what the rating and review thing can do. So if you appreciate what we're doing, certainly share the episode, but I absolutely, absolutely would love your feedback, even if it's negative, right? Even if something's not working for you, maybe you do appreciate what the show is doing. You, you're kind of liking what I'm doing, but you've, you've got a hang up with something. I don't know what it is. Let me know. Uh, send me an email, arun at enabledword.com. Find me through the website. You can find me through social media. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to see a comment, a rating, review. Let me know you're out there. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know if this resonates, if this helps you think through some things in your own life. Um, next week, uh, I'm excited stepping into an interview tomorrow morning, so Friday, and we'll release it next week with a, a dear friend of mine who's now in the healthcare industry. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about healthcare. Um, and so certainly we'll, we'll talk about COVID-19. But uh, until then, take care, hug a loved one, take a breath of fresh air, stay safe the rest of this week. Uh, look forward to Monday too for our next meditation. And we'll talk to you soon. Lead well.